First, this story is disturbing because it's one of those very familiar stories which you may have learned uh, in Sunday school as, as a kid and knew exactly what it meant, but then you read it again as an adult and you ponder it and it begins to dawn on you that it doesn't mean what you thought it meant. No disrespect to Sunday school teachers. We really appreciate what you do for our kids. But what I'm talking about is the flannel graph version of the story that some of us learned pre-technology. Uh, when up on the flannel graph was the guy in the robe and the beard who walked down the road, and the robbers jumped out and beat him up. And then a priest in his robe and beard goes by, and he doesn't even stop, bad man. And then a Levite uh, similarly goes by, and uh, he goes right by as well, heartless guy. But then the good Samaritan comes and he stops and he's nice to the man and he helps the man to get better by taking him to an inn. And then we're encouraged to be like the good Samaritan. We may no longer wear robes and beards, but we can take time to help people who need help when life brings them across our path. Well, guess what? Today's story is not about being that kind of good Samaritan. It's not a story about taking time to pull your car off the road to help the frazzled soccer mom whose minivan has a flat tire. It's not a story about stopping to help the elderly gentleman coming out of the grocery store when his thin plastic bag rips and his apples go rolling all over the parking lot. It's not a story about being nice to nice people. Now, don't get me wrong. These are great things to do. We should be nice to nice people. But as we'll see this morning, this story is about a whole lot more than that. The second reason this story is disturbing is because in the setup to this story, Jesus seemingly blows a perfect witnessing opportunity. Jesus has a perfect chance here to share the plan of salvation with the teacher of the law who comes to him in this story. This guy comes up to Jesus and asks, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, wouldn't you love it if your best friend who you'd been praying for for years, that they would come to know the Jesus who you've come to know and love? Wouldn't you love it if they came up to you and asked you what they needed to do to inherit eternal life? (laughs) Or even if a stranger came up to you and asked that, like this guy might have been to Jesus. I mean, this is a nice, fat softball lobbed right over the heart of the plate. But Jesus, instead of hitting it out of the park, instead of sharing the four spiritual laws or the bridge diagram or telling the guy that Jesus himself is the Savior and leading him to him for salvation, what does Jesus do? He asks the guy what the Old Testament law says. Does that seem strange to anyone else? And then this guy... uh, summarizes the law, and he does it well, and Jesus says, good job, do that, and you'll live. No, Jesus, we're saved by grace, not by keeping the law. You're doing it all wrong. Does this disturb anyone else or just me? (laughs) Okay, so there are two reasons that this story is disturbing, at least to me, but there's a third reason as well, and that is that this story is disturbing because of what it actually does say. Will you take a look at the story with me and see if we can figure out what this story is actually saying and how through it Jesus may be trying to disturb us this morning. The story begins with an expert in the Jewish law. He stands up and he addresses Jesus as teacher. 
Now, in today's schools, the, the teacher stands and the students sit. And if the students want to ask a question, they raise their hand and wait their turn. But in Jesus' culture, it was kind of the opposite. The teacher sat, and the students, if they wanted to ask a question, would stand up to ask their question. And so in coming to Jesus and standing up before him, this religious expert is putting himself in the place of a student. So far, so good. He also addresses Jesus as teacher, a term of respect. But then Luke adds a note of caution to the story. This teacher shows respect on the outside, but inside, Luke tells us, his motive is this. He wants to test Jesus. In his heart of hearts, this expert of the law is not the student, but the religious expert. He is the teacher, and he is trying to figure out if Jesus will pass his theological test. This religious teacher isn't asking Jesus about eternal life because he genuinely doesn't know and and he wants to find out how to inherit eternal life. No, this religious teacher is the expert, at least he thinks he is, and he is trying to judge whether Jesus has the right religious beliefs. Have you ever had that attitude toward Jesus? Have you ever wondered if Jesus had the right religious beliefs? Where you already know what's true and you trust yourself to judge what's right and wrong, and you come to Jesus, or or you read about God in the Bible, and, and you're putting God to the test. You're judging for yourself whether God is really good, really right, really trustworthy. Sure, we do that all the time, right? I've done it. And there's nothing wrong with asking God questions, per se. Jesus lets lots of people ask him questions in the Bible. He doesn't put them off, chide them, scold them for doing it. The psalmists ask God lots of questions in the Psalms. The prophets do it too. God doesn't expect us to believe blindly. No, God gave us minds. He invites us to think, to ponder, to ask hard questions. But here's the thing. When we ask God questions with the wrong motives, we wind up asking the wrong questions. Let me say that again. When we ask God questions with the wrong motives, we ask the wrong questions. And and so this teacher of the law, expert though he was, because he has the wrong motives, asks Jesus the wrong questions. However, Jesus is graciously going to try to help him get at the right question. That's why, as we'll see in the story, Jesus doesn't always... uh, or Jesus' answers don't always correspond to the questions the guy asks. To to some extent, Jesus, um, as the good teacher, answers the questions the guy should have asked rather than the questions he actually asks. Thank God Jesus does that for us as well. So what questions does this religious expert ask Jesus? Well, the first question he asks is not so clear that it's the wrong question. And I'll tell you why. Because you see, the religious teacher's question is not, what must I do to earn a place in heaven when I die? That is not the question he is asking. This is probably what we hear when we hear this question asked today, but that would clear, and that would clearly be the wrong question if he was asking, what must I do to earn a place in heaven? But um, that's not the question this guy was asking. Let me give you two reasons why. First, because when Jews in Jesus' day used the phrase um, eternal life, which literally meant life of the age, they were not talking about heaven. 
Rather, they were talking about the new age, which the Messiah, God's coming king, was, they believed, going to usher in on earth to renew all things. This was the age to come when everyone, according to their reading of the Old Testament, would have a nice piece of land, the land would be fruitful, and everyone would enjoy bounty and peace and blessing forever. This was the Jewish understanding, and in fact, with slight modification, it's the Christian understanding. And this guy wants to know who gets to inherit a place in that new world, that new age, that new creation, and who doesn't. Second, notice that this expert in the law does not use the word earn. He uses the word inherit. He does not ask, what must I do to earn eternal life? That would be the wrong question. Rather, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, Jews, like this religious teacher, knew that you couldn't earn a place in the new age. You could never earn it. Just like he knew the Jews had not earned a place in the old age, the promised land. Read the Old Testament. God didn't give the promised land because the people kept the law well enough. No way. God's people failed to keep God's commands again and again. So why did God give, people the, give his people the promised land then? Well, he gave it to them because God had promised to give it to them. And God is faithful to his promises. God had promised Abraham. God had promised Isaac. God had promised Jacob and all of their descendants. And the Jews were those descendants. And so the Jews inherited the promise. They inherited the land. But now this guy knows so many centuries later that things have gotten bad in his day, that the Jews don't enjoy the land and its blessings anymore, that they're being occupied and oppressed by the Romans. People are suffering. Hungry people are um, starving because of the economic oppression. People are being carted, out, carted off and being tortured and killed, and nobody knows where they are. Things are bad, and so they are longing for the coming of the Messiah, God's anointed king who will usher in this new age, this eternal life, this eternal age of blessing. And this guy wants to inherit a place in that age. Of course, everyone does. That's what he and the Jews understand eternal life to be. And he knows that this is a gift that you inherit. But he also knows that not every child of Abraham winds up inheriting it. Some disqualify themselves. Just like back in Moses' day, some disqualified themselves from entering the promised inheritance. A whole generation died for 40 years in the desert. Others died of plagues or snake bites when they disobeyed God. Even Moses didn't get in to enjoy the inheritance. And so the Jews in Jesus' day were hotly debating what qualified you, what disqualified you from sharing in the inheritance. What did you have to do to receive this gift of inheritance? Which was really a way of asking, who is in and who is out? Who are the in people who will inherit a place in the age to come and live there together in joy forever? And who will be on the outside looking in, rejected by God, failing to inherit those good things? We ask that question too today in a way, don't we? Who is in? Who's part of us? Who's a card-carrying member? And who is out? Uh, um, 
among those other people on the outside, outsiders, enemies, pagans, the lost, whatever you want to call them. Who is in and who is out? Clearly in Jesus' day, you, you had to be Jewish to be in. Gentiles were excluded. Samaritans were excluded. But what about the Jews who sold out and collaborated with the Romans? What about the Jews who didn't keep the whole law, who didn't eat kosher, who did, broke the Sabbath? Were they out too? This was a very common question at the time. And this guy, this religious expert, wants Jesus to weigh in on this political and religious and social debate. This guy wants to test Jesus to see if Jesus' answer is good enough, if it passes muster with this guy's understanding. Where does Jesus draw the line between the insiders and the outsiders, between the righteous and the sinners, between God's sheep and the black sheep? That's what this expert in the law is asking Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? Well, he responds very wisely like an expert teacher should. He doesn't spout off about what's true. He doesn't lecture the guy. Rather, Jesus listens. He asks questions. Jesus feels out where this guy is coming from to see how this guy views things and what this guy already knows so that Jesus will better know how to help this guy ask the right questions and get the right answer. So Jesus replies to this guy, in effect, you're an expert of the law, you tell me. What does God's word say? How do you understand it? And this guy answers smashingly. He sums up the law perfectly. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what the law, that's what God's word tells us we should do. That's how a true Jew lives. And Jesus says, yes, amen. I couldn't have said it better myself. It's about love, yes. Those who love God fully, those who love their neighbor as themselves, they're the ones who inherit a place in the eternal age to come. Do that and you will live. Live that way and you will be a true Jew, an inheritor of the promises and of God's fulfillment in the new age, the age of eternal life. Well, love God, love your neighbor, that's kind of a vague criteria to determine who's in and who's out. I mean, how do you size someone up and determine if they love God enough and love their neighbor enough? This religious expert is looking for more, more detail, more clarity. So he asks a follow-up question. And again, Luke tells us his motive is wrong, as ours are often wrong. And here's where it becomes more clear that this guy is asking the wrong question. Because what's his motive? He wants to justify himself. This guy wants to look good before others and before God. He wants to be righteous. He wants to be respected. He wants to be holy. He wants to make sure he's part of the in crowd and not on the outside. And he thinks it's in his power to do so. And so he asks his second question, which is clearly the wrong question. He asks, who is my neighbor? Why is this the wrong question? Because when you say, okay, I have to love my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? What are you really asking? You are asking, who do I not have to love? <laughs> okay, I have to love my neighbor, but not everyone's my neighbor, right? So who am I allowed not to love? <laughs> Who is on the outside who I can overlook, neglect, ignore, even hate, and get away with it? Who is my neighbor and who isn't? 
Do I have to love the Romans who are oppressing us? Do I have to love the tax collectors who are colluding with the Romans and cheating us out of our hard-earned money? Do I have to love the Samaritans, those uh, geographic neighbors of the Jews at the time, who are like a false religion, they believe the wrong stuff, so they're leading people astray, and they're fighting with and they're antagonizing God's people? Do I have to love them? Do I have to love the uneducated, the dirty, the smelly poor people, who don't keep the law very well, and so probably have disqualified themselves from inheriting eternal life anyway? Who do I not have to love? Don't we ask this question? Who's my neighbor and who isn't? Who do I not have to love? Do I have to love those across the political aisle who are trying to take this country down a very different path than the one I believe is honoring to God and good for the people? Do I have to love those not born in this country who are bringing un-American values into our country? in my perspective? Do, do I have to love those who are trying to take away my freedom and my way of life? Do I have to love those who would love the chance to blow me and my family up? Who is my neighbor? I told you this was a disturbing story. That's what this religious leader asks, just like we often ask it. Who is in and who is out? Who do we have to love, and who do we not have to love? And Jesus replies, in effect, that's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. And Jesus replies, says this by telling a story. Here's the story. One evening, a man got into his car after attending a prayer meeting at his church. And as he drove home, he stopped at a stoplight. When he stopped, a couple rough-looking figures approached him from the shadows. They opened his car door before he could lock it. By the way, this took place in the Bowery during the height of the crack epidemic in the 1980s. These guys grabbed the driver. They dragged him out of his car. One guy had a lead pipe, the other a knife. And they demanded his wallet. When he froze and resisted, they beat him senseless. They took his glasses his watch, they even took his clothes, and then they drove off in his car. There he lay in the gutter, battered and bruised in a pool of blood, in a pool of spotlight, or street light, trash blowing past him in the breeze and the urban decay of 1980s New York. And when all that is taken away from you and you're naked and you're unconscious, nobody can tell if you're their neighbor. Do you drive a new BMW or a beat-up old Oldsmobile? People can't tell. Do you dress in designer fashions or old tattered clothes? People don't know. Is your accent Bronx or Upper West Side? Are you a respectable person? Are you a bum? People can't see. Are you a neighbor or are you not? There is no way of knowing. Well, not long after, a pastor from an affluent Westchester County church happened to drive by. He had his doors locked. He was nervous. He was white-knuckling it, unfamiliar with the city, especially the Bowery at night, before GPSs, trying to find his way to the bridge to get out of the city. 
He'd been in the city for a ministry conference that afternoon. It had run later than expected, and now he was trying to quickly make his way home. He saw out of the corner of the eye the lifeless form in the gutter. He couldn't tell if it was alive or dead, but the light was green, there was a car on his tail, so he drove on. You can understand, right? By the way, pause for a minute. The priest, in Jesus' telling of the story, who walked by, the priest did nothing wrong in the popular opinion of his day. Because priests were not allowed to touch or even approach dead bodies. God's word forbid it. And who knew if the figure in the ditch was alive or dead? And so the priest's religious observance would dictate that he not stop or even take a close look. That's what it meant to love God in the priest's understanding. All right, back to our story. Remember I said that someone was on the uh, pastor's tail as he drove past the spot? Well, that car was driven by someone else who had come from the same ministry conference. And uh, this driver happened to be a deacon from a local church. She lived in the area. And she had seen her neighborhood deteriorate alarmingly. Uh, She was worried. Her husband was worried, too. And they had actually just been discussing whether they needed to move out to a safer neighborhood. And here now in the gutter was another reminder, another victim of the city's decay, probably dead, maybe from an overdose, maybe from a drug deal gone bad. This stuff was becoming all too common, she told herself. And so she also, like most people, had her car doors locked and drove on by. We can understand that, right? Well, then a few minutes later, a third guy drove by the spot. And this third guy saw the man, but he saw the man. (laughs) He saw him, and he made a decision. Even though he also had somewhere to go, he also had plans that evening, he also was eager to get through that part of town, but yet he pulled over, and he got out. And as he stooped over the motionless figure, he realized this human being lying in the gutter was still alive. And so he decided to do something. Do you know why? Because Jesus tells us he felt compassion for him. He felt simple human compassion. Even though this guy who stopped wasn't a Christian. In fact, do you want to know what this guy who stopped was? Now I'm going to modernize the story on you. This guy who stopped was a Muslim. He'd recently come to this country from a conservative Muslim country with his wife who wore a full uh, veil. They didn't speak English. And uh, when this guy had gotten here, he'd quickly gotten involved in the conservative mosque in his city. In fact, do you know where he was headed that night? He was headed to a meeting at his conservative mosque to scheme and plan with others about how to press New York City to give Muslims more rights to practice Sharia law in their communities. Can you believe it? (laughs) Well, guess what? Instead of going to that meeting, this guy helped the wounded man into his car. And he drove him to the closest city hospital. And there he stayed by the man's side all night as he was treated for his wounds. And then get this. 
In the morning, this Muslim even went to the billing office to give his information so that he could pay for the man's medical bills out of his own pocket. Hard to believe. So three guys, a pastor, a gal, a church deacon, and the Muslim, the Samaritan. And Jesus asks, which of these three was a neighbor to the man lying by the side of the road. And the religious expert says grudgingly, I suppose the one who showed mercy. Right? Only that's the way we sort of smooth it over in English translation. Literally, the guy replies, I suppose the one who did mercy. Did mercy. Echoing the original question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? the one who did mercy. And Jesus replies, go and do likewise. Do mercy too. Now wait a minute. Wait a minute. Does this mean we have to do what the Samaritan did to earn eternal life? No way. In the sense that we can never do anything to earn our way into eternal life. It's a gift. Only Jesus can give us entrance into eternal life, into the age to come. But yes, totally, we do have to do what the Samaritan did in the sense that Jesus is answering the question of how can we tell what sort of people are his people, bound for eternal life, bound for the coming kingdom which Jesus came to bring. Jesus says it's not people like the priest. Not people like the Levite, not like the religious expert even maybe, who are so concerned with their religion and using their religion to figure out who is in and who is out and who they have to love and who they don't have to love. Because that's not what Jesus came for. That's not what eternal life is about. No, eternal life, life in the coming kingdom is about living a life of radical love for anyone and everyone, no exceptions. I know, amen, I need to hear it too. It's the life that Jesus modeled when he came and he lived and he loved all kinds of people and he died for everyone on the cross, even the people you don't like and I don't like. A life which is about people, seeing people, really seeing them, and, and then letting our hearts have compassion and then doing mercy regardless of who those people are. And so N.T. Wright, the, the insightful New Testament interpreter, sums up the point of this story. He concludes, no church, no Christian can remain content with easy definitions which allow us to watch most of the world lying half dead in the road. Let me read that again. No church, no Christian can remain content with easy definitions which allow us to watch most uh, of the world lying half dead in the road. With this story, Jesus is blowing up our easy definitions, our political and religious and social definitions, which keep us thinking that we don't have to love the enemy and the outsider and the pagan, whatever you want to call them. With this story, Jesus is saying, stop asking who your neighbor is. Stop asking who you don't have to love. And start being a neighbor to anyone 
that you and I find in front of us, no matter who they are. Your enemy, yes. The outsider, for sure. The pagan, definitely. And then add in everyone else as well. See them like I see them, Jesus says. Have compassion on them like I have compassion on them. Do mercy to them like I have done mercy to them. Again, I told you that this was a disturbing story. So as uh, Maria comes um, to close us in prayer, I think it's Maria, invite us to ask ourselves, as we live our lives, who are we passing by that we figure God is not expecting us to love? Jesus says, think again. That is exactly the person I'm calling you to be a neighbor to. And eternal life, the life I came to give you as a gift, the inheritance I, in my grace, want to give you, life in the kingdom of God, which is even now beginning to break into the world, but one day will come fully and forever. That life is all about loving those kinds of people. Amen. Here's a prayer of intercession inspired by the story of the Good Samaritan.